If you would, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. This morning we pick up in verse 22. We go all the way through verse 37. So if you would, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Jesus, I'm sorry, that's uh, verse 15, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Would you work among us? Would you, would you encourage us this morning where we need to be encouraged by this hope that we have in Jesus? And as much as we don't always want to ask, we do indeed ask that you would pierce us where we need to be corrected by your word. would Would you bring repentance where it is needed this morning in our lives? And more than anything, would you be glorified? Work among us so that we know Christ better. We pray all this in his name. Amen. May be seated. Well, This week as I was preparing, I was reminded of a propaganda tool, one that's used by dictators and politicians, maybe some of us when we want to get our own views across. The tool is called the big lie. I know about lying, but in propaganda, how this is done is someone tells a lie often and forcefully until it is widely believed as true. I remember my granddad used to say, if you lie to yourself long enough, you'll start to believe it. That's exactly what this is. If you 
lie forcefully enough and often enough, people will start to believe that it's true. And I say that, kids, not so you'll use it, but so that you won't use that tool. And maybe you've even done this. I know we see it. You can look through history. You can see it being used all over the place. Nazi Germany used it. North Korea does this. Our own politicians, even in recent months and days and probably hours, have done this. Maybe you. Maybe you've done this too, because it's a very tempting tactic to use, isn't it? To present a lie, to present a lie so that people will, will follow you and believe you and be on your side. This is the tool and the tactic that's used in the passage today by the Pharisees, or attempted to be used. They attempt to to lie and present Jesus not as the son of David, they say, but as one who is serving and working for Satan. That's Beelzebul. That's the term that they use for Satan. You know, believing a lie like that has big consequences. It has consequences in our lives because it leads to sin. I think this is what this text is showing us. I think what we should see from this this morning is that the fruit of our mouths and of our lives reveal if we believe that Jesus is Lord or if we believe lies about Him. The reason I say that is as we watch the story unfold, we can summarize this passage in four movements. Scenes, not really scenes, but movements of the story. First, there's a lie about Jesus. Secondly, there's the truth about Jesus. Third, we find that we all have a choice to make about Jesus. And finally, there's fruit that comes forth from us based on what we believe about Jesus. And the way we speak is going to show the condition of our hearts. We'll walk through it this way. We'll see a lie. We'll see the truth. The choice will be presented before us that we must choose one or the other. And then we will see the fruit that comes about. So let's start with this lie, this lie that these Pharisees are telling about Jesus. Now, we don't know for sure if there was a time gap between last week's text and this week's. We don't know. We know Matthew's very much, uh, top, not topical, but he puts certain things together, themes of, of passages together to help us learn something about Jesus. And the theme that moves through from last week and this week is that there's opposition against Jesus. We're going to continue to see that. And what we find here very briefly, it's interesting, it's very brief what Jesus does in verse 22 is a man's brought to him. The the man's blind, the man is mute, he can't speak. And that is because of demon possession. A demon has caused damage to this man. This really is the pattern of Satan, isn't it? To cause, cause damage to God's creation, to humanity. From the garden forward, this is what he does and This man is brought to Jesus and has been Jesus' pattern. The man's healed so that he was able to... Now notice this. He's able to see and speak. Two major things that have been a problem with this man are completely, completely healed. Now I want you to put yourself in in that scene for a moment. Put yourself into the story. Imagine you're in this crowd... And you see this man being brought to Jesus and you might even know who he is because you live in the area. Maybe you don't know him personally, but you know of the, of the mute man that's blind. And there he is brought to Jesus. 
And Jesus cast the demon out, and immediately the man is able to speak and is able to see. If you were standing there in that moment, would you be amazed? Of course you would. Of course you would. No doubt you would be asking, who can do such an amazing feat? That's exactly the question they're asking. In verse 23, they ask, could this be the son of David? An interesting question. They're looking for the Messiah. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, those of you that were here on Wednesday night when we covered that will hopefully remember that. I, I mention it often. It's very important because in that passage, we have God through the prophet promising that David will have a, a, a family member on the throne forever. And if you read that passage, you find out that this is an eternal throne. It's a promise of a coming Messiah. And Matthew's already proved that Jesus fulfills this and the lineage requirements and fulfillments of all of these other prophecies. But then the people see that Jesus is even able to cast out a demon and no doubt, it brings back to mind this morning David's ability to be able to cast out demons by playing music. He would play music and the evil spirits would leave from Saul. And they see Jesus having that same ability. They see him doing all the other things that he's done in healing. And they think, could this really be the one? Now the Pharisees can't have any of this. You've probably been in these situations, right? Some of you that are children or some of you that had siblings growing up, they start making a case and you're like, no, 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 no. I can't let my parents believe this to be true. I've got to put forth myself. And the Pharisees, they don't want, they don't want this to be true. They don't want the people to believe that Jesus is the son of David and the Messiah. So they put forth a lie. And they say, Jesus didn't cast that demon out because he's the son of David. He did it because he serves Satan. Who has the power to cast out a demon except Satan himself? That's what they're saying. <laughs> and it's a lie. It's a lie. And the implication of this lie is this. They're saying Jesus is not the son of God. He's the son of the serpent. He's not the seed of the woman that will come and crush the head of the snake as promised in Genesis 3. No, he's the seed of the serpent. They are ascribing to Satan what God has done. I don't want us to miss what they're actually doing. It's a very serious charge that they're making. And it's also ridiculous. They had just seen a blind man who was unable to speak start to speak and see. They saw Jesus cast that demon out. They saw that it was specifically Jesus that did that. And they did not realize that it was, in, it was actually God who was doing work and not Satan. It's a really interesting thing that they're doing here. They totally missed who their enemy is. You know what they wanted in a Messiah? They wanted the revelation Jesus on a white horse with the sword and an army to come and 
just to kick the Romans out and to give them their just reward for, for being in God's land. But really, Rome was not their true enemy. Satan. Satan was their true enemy. And the one who could defeat their true enemy is standing right there in front of them, and they completely missed what was happening. The one who could defeat Satan, the one who could defeat sin, the one who could, could bring them into God's kingdom is standing right there proving who he is, and they didn't want him. Now why do I bring that up? You know we're not too different than them, are we? How clearly do we really see our enemy in this world? I, I, I see people right all the time on social media and the way they speak, and the enemy, enemy becomes not Satan, not sin in the world. The enemy becomes their boss, their neighbor, family members that they don't get along with, the opposite political party. The list goes on and on and on. Well, they don't really see that the true enemy, we don't really see that the true enemy is Satan. And if we're not careful, we can start believing lies like the Pharisees are speaking. We can start believing the wrong things about Christ and not understand that there's a real spiritual battle in this world, although there's good news. There's good news. Jesus didn't just walk away and go, y'all are silly. He tells us the truth about who He is. We have this lie put forward, and now we have truth. And those of you that like logic are going to truly like this section. I mean, I mean, in our own terms, Jesus owns them, okay? He puts them in their place. And those of you who enjoy that kind of thing, hopefully not sinfully, um, you're going to enjoy this, okay? I love this. Jesus knowing their thoughts, and I want to pause there for a moment. It appears that they're saying these things, but they're not saying it directly to Jesus. They're maybe saying it on the side, or they're telling each other, or maybe some of the people in the crowd, and, and they're not saying it directly in front of Jesus for obvious reasons. And he knows what they're thinking. And that tells us something about Jesus. <laughs> they say, Jesus is servant of Satan. And Matthew says, Jesus is divine because he even knew what they were thinking. He understands two things. One, they're promoting a lie about him. And two, their hearts are hard. Look at how he destroys their argument. <laughs> he says this, If a kingdom is divided against itself, it will be laid to waste. Meaning, kingdoms can't fight one another and expect to survive. They, they have to be united to fight their enemies. I would love to see the look on their faces when he starts to say this and they're like, oh no, he knew what we said. There was a hot mic situation. <laughs> he says, kingdoms can't fight themselves. If, if Satan was to cast himself out, he's fighting against his own cause and his kingdom would fail. And I, you know, he's, he's saying, I guarantee you, Satan does not want his kingdom to fail. Satan's MO is to destroy to bring sin into the world, to bring death, to remove sight and speech. And Jesus did the exact opposite. Oh no, I did not. I did not cast out by Satan. That's, that's antithetical to what he wants. 
No, I, I cast out with the power of God. And then thirdly, I love this. He implicates these Pharisees. He says, how do your own sons cast out demons? <laughs> you see, there's these itinerant exorcists that are going around that the, the Pharisees would have gotten along with and, and liked. And he says, how do they cast out demons? In the same way that I do. If I'm casting out by Satan, then so are they, which implicates you. He completely destroys their argument. And then he says, let me tell you the truth about who I am. It's by the Spirit of God, this is the Holy Spirit, that I've cast out demons. I just want to make a note. People who say, I don't ever see the Trinity in Scripture. Interesting. Jesus is talking about himself and the Spirit working at the same time in the same place as two separate persons, but yet one God. And he says, the Spirit is the one that's working. I'm working here. This is God's work. And he uses an analogy to explain how this can happen. He says, how can a person enter into a strong man's house and steal from him? It's impossible. You can't enter into a strong person's house unless that strong person is bound up. And if the strong man is bound up and tied up, you can go anywhere in his house you want and take anything you want and he can't stop you. You see, in this analogy, Satan is the strong man. And he's been bound up. He's been defeated. And Jesus is ransacking his domain. I don't know if you've picked up on that through all of these healings. Jesus is ransacking the house of Satan. All these places where Satan has, has had demon-possessed people, where illness the effects of sin have come into the world. Jesus goes in and He just fixes it all. Fixes it all. You see, in verse 28 we find out that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is here in Jesus. He is the victor and He is not on the side of Satan. He is the true Messiah, the God-man that came to save people. And He has bound up this strong man and He is destroying this strong man's dominion. I want to make sure you understand how important this is. Jesus is telling us that He has defeated Satan and that His kingdom is here. And if you are one of Jesus' people, you are secure in His work. I didn't make the connection until this week. And I, I haven't done a, enough work to know how the language functions exactly, but at least topically, Paul picks up on this language. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13, Paul describes the work of salvation as this. You have been taken out of the domain of darkness, the house of the strong man, and you have been put into the kingdom of the Son. You see, Jesus is ransacking Satan's domain. He's taking away from Satan what Satan thinks is his. And he's, he's making those people saints. And he's making those people like him. He's taking us 
us who were in that domain and He has brought us into His kingdom. And we now are Jesus' people, not Satan's. That doesn't mean we won't ever sin again, but that means that we can fight against sin. We can repent when we do sin. We not only can, we should. We are no longer controlled by this dominion of darkness. We have a great Savior, and this should be good news for us. We won't be perfect. We'll still fall. We still carry this sin nature, but we can fight because the kingdom of God has come upon us in Christ. You know, that's the good news that we have here. So we have this lie, we have the truth, and now we have a choice that we need to make. They had to make. It's the same choice we have to make. We've been presented with a lie about Jesus. We've been presented with the truth that He's the Son of God. We have to decide what we believe. What is the real thing we're going to pair ourselves with in this world? Are we going to believe that Jesus is on the side of Satan or that he really is the true king and a true kingdom that has come. We have to make these choices. We might word it as he's the son of God or he's not. We're going to believe the good news of the gospel or we're not. Look at verse 30 with me. Here's where I say there's a choice. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral ground. You're either on the side of Jesus, believing that he really is the Savior, or you're not. There's no lukewarm middle. That's the choice before us. The choice before us is will we believe the truth about Jesus or not? You know, there's many lies that we can believe about Jesus. Not just that he's from Satan. I know a lot of people who don't think Jesus is the Savior, but they wouldn't think he was from Satan. He did too many good things. But there's other lies that are put forth too. Lies like, Jesus really isn't God. It's a lie. Jesus didn't really come to save people. He's just a good teacher. Lie. Jesus would never let anyone perish under the weight of their sins. God is going to save everyone. No, it's a lie. You know, Jesus didn't really, he didn't really say those things that make me uncomfortable or go against the spirit of the age. No, he really did say those things. Jesus didn't really say that trusting in him was important and repentance was important. Yeah, he really did. One lie that I think is not always spoken but is lived out in front of us is that Jesus can be ignored not hated, just ignored, and that salvation can come through other things like being a good person, being a good American, being a good Texan, being a good Aggie, being a good fill in the blank. It's a lie. How many of these lies have you heard and have been presented to you? Many. Don't believe them. Believe the truth. Jesus has come exactly as, he, as was promised in the Scriptures. He's divine, not from Satan. He's defeated Satan. On the cross, He stood as our sacrifice. He took our punishment. 
He went to the grave and he came forth and all who believe in him will be saved. That is the promise of Scripture. If you haven't done that, today you are being called to believe. Now, what comes after verse 30 is really confusing. You may be, you may be looking ahead and going, I don't know how this fits in. It, it's a text that's um, very frequently and widely quoted and interpreted without the context of this passage. Jesus says, when he talks about being saved, that all sin will be forgiven except for one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard this quoted all sorts of ways. Pick up the last half of verse 32 and quote it, and you can make that mean whatever you want. But we shouldn't do that. We've got to look at what the passage says in context. So let's, let's review the context. In context, the Pharisees have been attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan. That's what they're doing. That's, that's exactly what they're doing. Jesus says, now if I come by the Spirit of God in verse 28, He's saying this work is, the Holy Spirit is working. And they're, they're attributing that work to Satan. And if they're doing it in such a way that it shows that they don't, they don't believe, and they're ignorant, Jesus is warning that there could be danger for them. Now, to really fully understand that, let me, let me pause for a minute. To really fully understand this, we know what blasphemy is. We generally think of blasphemy as some offense towards God. And that is correct, but it's really extreme slander and speaking against someone in that way. And most often we use it towards God, although this same word is used in other places throughout Scripture against, against people. And in this case, in this moment, Jesus is making a distinction between blasphemy of himself and blasphemy of the Spirit. The first, blasphemy of Jesus, is the rejection of the truth of the gospel and of the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And guess what? There's forgiveness for that. Praise be to God because I'm looking around and I see you. Even extreme blasphemy against Jesus. Think of Paul. <laughs> it was so bad, Jesus showed up and knocked him off his horse, all right? Now, the second thing he blasphemy is the blasphemy of the Spirit. And in this, we have the same rejection of the truth of the gospel, but with a thoughtfully, willingly, self-consciously rejection of the work of the Spirit. Rejecting God's Spirit, his, the Holy Spirit's work, that... That last part comes from D.A. Carson. That's his way he describes it. Another theologian says it this way, blasphemy against the Spirit is a sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as the very agent of evil. So that, what he means is ascribing Jesus as an agent of evil. Despite the full knowledge of his work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony to him, the blasphemer has heard the gospel, proclaimed with clarity and power to them, He's watched Christians live good lives, yet he hates Jesus and Christianity and views it as wickedness and deceit. That sounds a lot like what these Pharisees were doing. What Jesus just did was actually from Satan. It's evil. It's a warning we all need to hear. Those who never turn to Christ and reject the work of the Spirit, 
and they go to their grave unbelieving, will not be saved. But for those of us in Christ, we have no reason to fear this saying. We have no reason to fear that we might accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit and God would remove His work from us. We have no fear of that. We have no fear of the possibility of losing Christ's work because He tells us that all that are in His hand will not be lost. We have no fear of committing the sin because by the power of Jesus and working in us, the power of the Spirit indwelling in us, we can't do this. Now, I don't know if Jesus meant that these Pharisees had crossed the line or if they were just dangerously close. But we do need to hear this warning. We need to hear this warning. Now, we have this choice. We can believe or we cannot believe. Depending on if we believe in Christ or not, there's going to be fruit. Good fruit or bad fruit? The whole section from 33 to verse 37 is making the point that fruit comes off a tree. And that fruit will tell you about the condition of the tree. Good fruit comes from good trees. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. It's an analogy. A way of a proverb type saying, it's an analogy pointing to the heart. The good person produces good fruit and the wicked person produces bad fruit. Now what's really impactful about this is in the eyes of the people, the Pharisees were the very definition of goodness and righteousness. (laughs) They, by their own understanding of the law were righteous. They did everything right. And not only did, in their mind, not break the law, as Wiley described it last week, they had these walls around the law. They didn't even touch the walls. They didn't even brush up against those, those extra rules. All outward appearances, they were perfect. They were righteous. And look at what Jesus says about them in verse 34. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They weren't righteous at all. Not at all. In fact, it's the opposite of righteous to ascribe God's miraculous work to Satan. Now, this is a really interesting language that Jesus used here when He calls them a brood of snakes, of vipers. He's not just using our general disdain for snakes as humans. No, He's making a theological point here. They would have understood what He was saying. He says you're acting like seed of the serpent from the garden. A brood is children. You're a child of the serpent. You're a child of Satan. That's what he just told the Pharisees. And because of that, what comes out of you is evil. What's deep down inside of you is not good. It's evil. And it's bubbling out. They showed themselves to be this because 
or the way they speak. It's a very important point of the text for all of us. You see, the words that come forth out of our mouths and the actions that we do, they come from the abundance of our hearts. Not the little, maybe a little sin, no, the abundance, the fullness of what's inside of us. When we speak, it's a sample of what's inside of us. How's your heart doing? What's abounding within you? If you're not sure, just evaluate the way that you've spoken even this past week. Maybe not just the things you speak, but maybe the things that you've held back. But they were here and you really wanted to say them. And then in private, you unloaded. Do you speak words of bitterness? What about words of anger? Are your words malicious? Do you have outbursts of anger? Do you slander people? Is your talk obscene? Do you speak words of envy? Those are all listed by Paul in Colossians 3, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 4 as ways we should not speak. And that's the pattern of your life where you speak those things and you find that that's what's welling up always and, and pulling out or just flowing out of you. You're showing that your heart is in need of repentance. It's in need of sanctification. Dear Christian, when you speak that way, what you're showing the world is that you, like these Pharisees, believe a lie about Jesus. But I want you to know all these can be forgiven in His work. Oh, dear Christian, if you find that your speech, your speech falls into these categories, turn to Christ in repentance. Act like, act like a child of Christ and not like a child of the serpent. Ask that God would bring forth in you something different, that you would have words of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and words of forgiveness. You know, those are the word, those are the, the list that stand opposite of the ones I read earlier in Paul's writings. Ask God to help you. Not that what comes out would necessarily be different just so you can be like a Pharisee and put on a show, but what would come out would be different because what is in here has been changed. Now let's look at the end of this passage. It's very sobering to me. Look what, look what Jesus says. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and your words you will be condemned. That, that, he's not using justification like Paul. He's just saying it will show the condition of your heart. On judgment day, brothers and sisters, you are going to be accountable for your words. Even your careless words. How much more will you be responsible for your intentional words that overflow from a heart that has not repented of sin? This passage serves as a warning for the Pharisees not to lie about who he is and to believe the truth. It also is a warning for us. It's a warning for us to repent and to turn to Christ and ask that he would root out in us these, 
these lies and this sinfulness. And for those of you that have never trusted in Jesus, this passage is calling you to repent as well. I want you to know that one day you will be held accountable for everything you do and say. Every sin is going to be punished by the fullness of God's wrath for all eternity unless you have trusted in Jesus and He has given you His righteousness and He has taken that sin and extinguished it on the cross. If you've never turned to Him, why not today? Well, this text... I hope the challenge should. It's meant to challenge the way that we speak and act. Not just for the sake of speaking better and acting better, but because our words and our actions reveal what's abounds inside of us. It really shows if we truly believe the truth about Jesus or if we're living in a way that shows that we don't really think Jesus can change us. A lie. May we all believe that Christ has redeemed His people, that sin really is bad, and that we are no longer bound by Satan's rule, and that we can strive to be like Him. So as we go forth from here, ask that God would help you and strive. Strive. Do the work asking for His help, that He would change you to be more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful We are thankful for Christ and His work. We are thankful for all that He has done for us. We ask, I ask on behalf of everyone here that You would change us. Would You root out the sin in us that overflows out of our words and our actions? We don't want just our words and actions to be changed. We want our hearts to continually, consistently be sanctified. Would You do that work in us? We need you to do that. Would you give us desires to strive in our sanctification, to strive to be more like Jesus and to fight off sin of this world and to to fight against the lies that are told to us and to cling to the truth of who Jesus is. Father, we need you to do this. We ask that you would and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.